After a series of staggering defeats, Blue Oyster Cult assembled in the recording studio in late 1976 for a session with fame producer Bruce Dickinson. And luckily for us, the cameras were rolling. All right, guys, I, I think we're ready to lay this first track down. By the way, my name is Bruce Dickinson. Yes, the Bruce Dickinson. And I got to tell you, fellas, you have got what appears to be a dynamite sound. Coming from you, Bruce, that means a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're Bruce Dickinson. This is incredible. I can't believe Bruce Dickinson digs our sound. Easy, guys. I put my pants on, just like the rest of you, one leg at a time. Except, once my pants are on, I make gold records. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. Don't fear the reaper. Take one, roll all right. One, two, three, four. Could you come in here for a second, please? That, that was going to be a great track. Guys, what's the deal? Uh, are, are you sure that was sounding okay? I'll be honest, fellas, it was sounding great, but I could have used a little more cowbell. <laughs> so, let's take it again. And Gene. Yeah. I gotta have more cowbell. <laughs> Don't blow this for us, Gene! Could be, could be so selfish, Gene. Can I just say one thing? Say it, baby, just say it. I'm staring here, staring at rock legend Bruce Dickinson. I'm a cock and a walk, baby. And if Bruce Dickinson wants more cowbell, we should probably give him more cowbell. Say it, baby. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Thank you, Bruce. Babies, before we're done here, y'all be wearing gold-plated diapers. What does that mean? Never question Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> Roll it. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. Sonny, you got fever? You got fever for more cowbell, baby? Dude, cowbell's a way to go, man. That's uh, what attracted me to Motley Crue, I think. Any good producer knows that the way to get the best out of an album is by adding cowbell. I think that's a known fact amongst all producers. Uh, I'm surprised that uh, more 
rock singers don't carry a cowbell around just to hit it. Remember how the tambourine thing used to be a thing? Yeah. Like they should just have a cowbell. <laughs> I would carry one around, but I'm busy carrying a triangle instead. Nice. <laughs> cowbell would fit you better. That's for sure. You have the personality of a cowbell. That's true. I like to hang them around my neck, kind of Flav the Flav style. Oh. Yeah, boy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, you know what? This is going to be a cool episode because a lot of times when we do these episodes, we've done them sort of as a tribute episode because somebody has passed away. And as of this recording, that is not the case. This is all about just thanking someone for all the great work that they've been a part of. We're talking about the one, the only Michael Wagner. Michael announced his retirement at the end of April. He sold the studio in Nashville. He sold off a lot of his gear and he's 72 years old and he's just going to enjoy life. I think that's awesome. As a fan of his work from producing to mixing to engineering, He's done some fantastic albums over the years, mostly in our genre of hard rock. And so we want to do this episode and basically just as a thank you for all the killer work that he's done over the years. Yeah, you don't quite get to know exactly what he's touched until you start looking at the album credits, right? Guys like us, we just bought cassettes or, well, in your case, eight tracks and 45s. But anyway, in my case, it was cassettes and CDs. And you just put them in and you enjoy the music and, you know, it's a band you like and a singer you like, a guitar player you like. You don't really think about who's producing all this stuff. And then you start seeing the same name over and over and over. And that makes it different, right? Well, yeah. Geeks like you and I and the rest of all of our friends around the podcasting world that are in the podcasting rock music genre. I mean, we did read the back of our cassettes and the back of albums and Michael's name appeared a lot of times. Do you remember what record he appeared the first time that you saw his name pop up? Because I sort of do. Yeah, for me, it was probably under lock and key. That's when I kind of started reading album credits, right? Because I just figured, you know, when I buy a Prince album, it just says Prince and Prince does everything, right? So it's like, okay, well, these guys must do everything, right? So I wasn't really reading it until you start getting an idea of, oh, there's different songwriters on different songs. And I think it was under lock and key when I probably first saw his name. Yeah, for me, it was either the first great white record or it was the first docking record. It was one of those two. But I think Michael also, and it doesn't talk about it a whole lot in the Wikipedia and all that stuff, but I think that he was sort of a protege of Dieter Dirks, which was a producer of a lot of the great Scorpion records. And so I think he, much like Bob Rock was Bruce Fairburn's protege, Michael was a protege of Dieter Dierks. Yeah, it would make sense because they're from the same you know area of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, I've seen the stuff where he was the technically, I guess, the first except guitarist mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I don't really know where he got his producing chops. That that part I'm not too sure of. Yeah, Michael's been located in Nashville for several years now, right? Probably like 20 years or so at this point. But we've seen Michael both at Rock and Pod events in Nashville, and he's been on the Monsters of Rock cruises as well. So he's very easy to spot. He's a tall gentleman with bleach white hair. You can't miss him. He sticks out for sure. But we're going to cover some records 
and get into Michael's work over the years. But before we do all that, you know, we got to do this. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. So tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight is a band that we've featured before, and this is not a new record, but we figured that it goes along with saying thank you to Michael. We're doing that by spotlighting one of the newer bands that he has produced, and that is the band Denman from Nashville. Dakota and Ben Denman, brothers, they released an album called Raw Deal, back in 2019, I think. And this is a song off that record called Alive in Overdrive. Check it out.
So we've talked about them before. You know, it's kind of a cross between probably Metallica and Black Label Society, depending on how you want to kind of see it. There's a little thrash to it. There's no doubt. But then they'll have the big backing vocals from like out of nowhere. So that's not very Metallica or BLS. So they're trying to be modern with it. That's great. You know, when I come across it, I enjoy listening to it. It's probably not something I super seek out because it doesn't really hit my bang zone. But we saw them live. They were good. Yeah, Dakota is a hell of a guitar player. He's really a fantastic guitar player. I've seen him do a lot of videos, like shredding videos and things like that. Now he's a pilot, and that's fantastic. I think the band is still playing and still around. They've just been on hiatus like everybody else for COVID. So hopefully they'll get back to playing here in the next upcoming uh, months, and we'll be able to check them out again. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. Okay, so before we get to the albums we want to talk about today, and we just kind of picked 10 albums, uh, they're a little bit different. They're not all really the same a genre, I would guess, but you'll get an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about them. I will tell you that we're not really going to dive deep into Michael's history. He's got several interviews out there, two great ones. One was from The Double Stop. It was episode 20 from uh, June 29th, 2014, if you want to check that out. And then there's another one. is episode 107, released on October 20th, 2013 on Decibel Geek. So those two, you get to find out everything you want to know about Michael. He knew Udo since he was 13 years old. They were schoolmates, how he met Dawkins, how he moved to the U.S., all of that kind of stuff is uh, in those two interviews. And, you know, this guy, hell, Michael's a pilot. I don't know if you know that, you know, nah. he worked with Janet Jackson. So there's just things that, you know, we could have spent all day talking about that really those two podcasts did a great job with. Yeah. He covered uh, a lot of ground on the Decibel Geek podcast. He did some great albums unleashed with those guys. A couple of those records, I think we're going to talk about at least one of them today. So, so getting started here, first record we're going to talk about is Warrant's 1992 Dog Eat Dog. It was their third studio album. So at this point, of course, the producers, Michael Wagoner, um, at this point, the members are Janie Lane, Joey Allen, Eric Turner, Jerry Dixon, Stephen Sweet. So now you got, I don't know if you can call them originals, but they were the classic lineup, basically. Singles off this third album were Machine Gun, The Bitter Pill, The Hole in My Wall, and Inside Out. Machine Gun actually hit the mainstream rock charts at number 36, it topped out there. The other three didn't do too well. And then this album did end up going gold, and the album topped out at number 25 on the Billboard 200 in 1992. My thoughts on this album, you know, that whole ma 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 machine gun, right? That that's warrant, but there is definitely some heavier music and some of the melodies are heavier, but it's not quite grunge. Like people will say, oh, this is Warrant's grunge album. Grunge hasn't really hit at this point, right? So it's not really their grunge album. The next one, I can't speak for the next one. Songs like Bonfire and Hollywood definitely sound different if they were released in 1988, though, and would work on the first two albums. The album doesn't have a great ballad. And for me, I love Warrant Ballads, so that's a problem for me. Inside Out's just too fast, and that's not really what I'm looking for from Warrant. So my two favorite songs on here are Really Machine Gun, and then there's this really cool song called All My Bridges Are Burning.
This is not an album I go to often, uh, but uh, there's some good stuff on it. Your thoughts on this album? This album has garnered a lot of love over its later years. It may not have been loved very much by a lot of people when it first came out, but over the years, people have grown to really like this record a lot. A lot of people actually consider this their favorite Warrant record. I don't know if it's my favorite Warrant record, but it definitely competes. I love this record. I think it's fantastic from start to finish. Probably my top songs off this record are Hole in the Wall and Bonfire. I really like All My Bridges is Burning as well. I'm not sure there's a song on this record that I don't like. I think Bitter Pill was a fantastic song, the way they recorded it. So I don't know. I hate that this album didn't do better. It certainly is not a grunge record. It's just a straight up hard rock, even borderline metal record at at some points. Yeah, I really, really love this record and go to it often, personally. Next record we're going to talk about is, (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm going to talk about Raven. And the reason I'm laughing about this is the fan that was listening to Warrant in 1989 and the fan that was listening to Raven in 1983 would be fighting each other at this point. Like they, there's no way those two hang out. You know, it is what it is. And that's why Michael is who he is because he's done such a vast, a different style of music and helped them do well. So Raven all for one released in 1983 was their third studio album. At this point, the producer's Michael Udo's helping depending on which version you have. Cause he helped with a few things. And then Raven had a hand in producing it too. 
the members at this point are John Gallagher, who's playing bass and is on lead vocals, Mark Gallagher, who's on guitar, Rob Hunter, who's on drums. Uh, there was a reissue of the CD that has a couple of songs featuring Udo from Accept on a couple of tracks. Um, this is the album that got him on Megaforce, which got him on Atlantic for the next four years. And then they actually had some charting hits in the U.S. This was not a charting hit in the U.S. My thoughts on this album. It's just too metal for me. This is the beginnings of thrash, and I'm just not a big fan of that. There's not enough melody to hook me. I don't like John's vocal phrasing at all. When pop fans say they don't like metal, this is what they're talking about. Like the swords on the album is all you need to see to go, okay, I guess I'm not going to like metal if I'm a pop fan because look at what they got. You know, this just songs like All for One, they're just brutal. I mean, they're, it's nothing Michael did wrong. It's just, I just don't love this band. And that cover or Born to be Wild is the absolute worst version I've ever heard of that song. So on this album, Take It Away is probably the only listenable song for me. And I know you like Raven, and I'm sorry. <laughs> so I was the fan that loved both Dog Eat Dog and Raven. I listened to Raven in 1983. I listened to Dog Eat Dog in 1992, baby. And I love it all. So like you said, Raven were the beginning stages of what Metallica and those bands would become. Bands like Metallica looked up to Raven. They opened for Raven. I can remember going to the record store and there was a black and red covered record on the end caps. And they were both Megaforce records. One was Kill Em All by Metallica. The other one was All for One by Raven. I bought both records that day. So they have a lot to offer. I get it. I completely understand why you don't like them. It's not a surprise to me. I get it. All for One. One for all. That was definitely metal in 1983. All for one. One for all. And when I was wearing wristbands that had studs on it, baby, I was ready to fight. I would have fought people like you, baby. <laughs> so I love it. I get it. And I understand why it wasn't a big success. And they ended up at Atlantic. And I don't think their time at Atlantic was particularly good because I think Atlantic wanted to make a hit band out of them. And I don't think Raven was ever suited for that type of thing. So they're still putting out albums today. They still got some great albums left in them. They put out some really good albums in recent years. So I would encourage people that are into heavy metal, just straight out metal, especially the new wave of British metal, go back, listen to this record all for one. Michael did a great job with this record and then check out some of the more recent Raven stuff. It's a little bit more modern and, uh, you know, still true to their roots. So there you go. Next album we're going to talk about is Skid Row's debut album. And, you know, there's been interviews with Michael that he said, cause he was, you know, he was involved in mixing in a lot of albums when he first started out. And he mentioned in a few interviews that to him, mixing felt like just fixing, right? That he really wanted to be the producer. So anytime he had the chance to both mix and produce, he did it. And then in later years, he says, Mixing kind of becomes a pain. So as long as you have somebody who can do it the way you would do it, he just wanted to produce and not mix. Skid Row's debut happens to be where he does both, mixing and producing. 1989 is when the debut album gets released. The members at that point are the members you all know. Sebastian Bach on lead vocals, which everybody wishes he was back except for me. Rachel Bolin on bass, Scotty Hill and Snake Sabo on guitar, and Rob Afuso on drums at this point. The album topped out at number six on the Billboard 200. By the way, here was the top five 
when installed at six. Number five was Full Moon Fever by Tom Petty. Okay, that one's probably a tough one to beat. Number four was Repeat Offender by Richard Marks. No matter what you think about Richard Marks, that was a tough one to beat. Mm-hmm. Forever Your Girl was number three by Paul Abdul. I'm not too sure that was tough to beat. That was tough to beat. <laughs> I don't know That's a that. good record, man. <laughs> okay. Number two was Hanging Tough by New Kids on the Block. Okay, we're getting worse here now. And the number one album, when Skid Rose stalled at six, was Girl You Know It's True by Milli Vanilli. And to those of you that don't know, Sonny has the platinum record of this on his wall, and he actually has a fab uh, wig that he wears once in a while when he sings in the mirror. <laughs> that might not be true, but what is true is I saw Millie Vanilli open for Paula Abdul at the Great America Park here <laughs> back in the 90s. There you go. That's a hit concert. <laughs> yeah. The singles off this album were Youth Gone Wild, which got to number 99 on the Billboard 100, 18 in Life, which got to number four, I Remember You, which got to number six, Piece of Me, which didn't chart. This band was all over MTV from basically 89 through 91. My thoughts on this album, it is simply awesome. Desert Island album for me is produced and sounds like arena filling rock. You got a great, excitable, good looking front man. You got rockers like Big Gun, Sweet Little Sister, Piece of Me, Here I Am, Making a Mess. You got incredible ballads like 18 in Life, I Remember You. And you got the anthem of all anthems with Youth Gone Wild. You can't go wrong with this album. Like, this album is so, so good. And you had mentioned Despo Geek did an Albums Unleashed with Michael and Rachel Bolin. And that uh, got released October 26th of 2016. So if you want to find that on their feed, they talk about every single song, which is great. And they talk about some things with Sebastian's vocals. That's very interesting in that podcast. Your thought of the debut album? Uh, it's perfect record. It's everything that you said it is. It's a Desert Island record for me. I played the shit out of this record. Just fantastic from start to finish. My personal favorite off the record is probably Making a Mess. I love, love, love that song.
even a song like Youth Gone Wild, which for me at this point is fatigue, or I'm sorry, not Youth Gone Wild, 18 in Life. That's fatigue for me at this point, but it's a fantastic song. It's so good. Yeah. There's not a bad word to say about this record. Yeah. They definitely rode the wave because ballads were so big between 87 and 89, and they come with two killer ones on the same album. It does not surprise me that their debut album did so well. And to a lot of the haters out there that think, okay, Skid Row isn't Skid Row without Sebastian, this record was basically written before Bach even joined the band. So the writing is Rachel and Snake. Those are the guys responsible for these tunes. Next album we're going to talk about is Alice Cooper Constrictor from 86, his ninth studio album. Again, Michael does both the producing and the mixing here. Members at this point, because Alice Cooper's band always changes members, seems like. He's obviously on lead vocals. He's got Kane Roberts on guitar, Kip Winger on bass, Dave Rosenberg on drums. And what had happened to Alice at this point is he'd released Zipper Catch's Skin in 82. It didn't chart. And he wasn't used to that because he was charting basically on every album. Then he releases 83's Dada. He doesn't chart again. So he goes in seclusion for three years and just basically forgets about music, comes back, and I think kind of primed the pump a little bit because people were looking forward to him coming back, and this album shot to number 59. Now, the movie didn't hurt because the single He's Back Behind the Mask was the theme song for Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives. That did not hurt this album at all. And then Teenage Frankenstein, which was also a single, was in the film, but neither one hit the Billboard 100 charts because really Alice is not a guy who hits the Billboard 100 charts often. My thoughts on this album? We've said it before. Many of our friends believe 80s Alice is the best Alice. I would say I would have to agree with that. He's an acquired taste. I would have to agree with that vocally. I like some Alice, but the band would not make it in the top 100 list for me. Luckily, I came in at trash at 1989. So it was a little more of a polished hair metal type Alice, which was kind of cool because if it wasn't, I'm not sure I ever listened to Alice again. Because I'll tell you on this album, dude, like Thrill My Gorilla and Simple Disobedience, like you don't even have to hear the songs to realize that they could be a tough listen. But I would tell you that the two singles, Teenage Frankenstein and The Man Behind the Mask and Life uh, Life and Death of the Party, I like those songs. And then there's a song called Crawlin' that uh, if you haven't heard it in a while, you might want to check out. It could basically be an Ace Frehley song. He should put it on Origins 3. Ace would kill that song. So what do you think about Alice Cooper's Constrictor? So I respect Alice. I think uh, Alice is iconic, obviously. Uh, I think I saw this tour in 86 when Vinnie Vincent Invasion opened up. Outside of that, I got to be honest, I'm a hits guy. I don't know a ton about Alice Cooper. I've just never been a huge fan. I think his show is cool, but the music just never really connected with me. Maybe it's his vocals. I'm not sure. This record, I mean, I recognize a lot of the songs on here, obviously, because like I said, I'm sort of a hits guy uh, when it comes to Cooper. So yeah, I mean, it is what it is. The show was good. Yeah, I didn't see Alice till 90 because I saw him on the trash tour and it was good. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. Alice is great. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing him on Monsters of Rock. Yep. Next down, we're going to talk about Metallica Master of Puppets, 86, their third studio album. Here's where Michael's mixing, but there's somebody else producing, Fleming Rasmussen. I don't know who that guy is, but he produced a record. The members at this point in Metallica are Hetfield on vocals and guitar, Kirk Hammond on guitar, Cliff Burton is around still playing bass, Lars obviously on drums. The album tops out at number 29 on the Billboard 200. It sold 6 million copies 
in the U.S. alone, and it was a stepping stone on their way to number one uh, several years later. The single master of puppets went gold by itself, and people don't realize sometimes that when we say a single went gold, you know how hard it is to sell 500,000 of one song? Like, And I get it, the singles helped, and probably CD singles helped, but it doesn't happen often. And that song didn't chart and still sold gold. So yeah, that's pretty cool. My thoughts on this record, the drums and the guitar absolutely pierce through the mix. Like you cannot get away from them. I just got goosebumps, chicken skin, whatever the hell you want to call it, saying that. The band sounds super crisp. And to me, Masters of Puppets is their best album. I am not a super Metallica fan. I get it. I'm from San Francisco and I'm probably going to get booed out of San Francisco for saying that. I just, you know, I enjoy some of it. I don't enjoy a ton of it. And I'll admit that songs like Disposable Heroes and Orion get a little long in the tooth and I got to be in the right mood to listen. But songs like Battery, dude, when the first 40 seconds you have no idea what's going to happen next and then they like rip your head off and all the pace changes and then you got the hints of the Iron Maiden gallop. Like that's what kind of got me interested in Master of Puppets as it was. And I would say, yeah, probably... The title track, Welcome Home Sanitarium, and Battery are probably my faves on this record. How about you? I know there's a lot of people out there that sure as hell wish that Michael would have also mixed Injustice for All. Because <laughs> yeah. for me, Master of Puppets is probably their best sounding album as far as the mixes go, in my opinion. I absolutely love this record. Is it my favorite Metallica record? It's really hard for me because I have a special relationship with the first two Metallica records. So Ride the Lightning and Kill Em All. I mean, those were my first albums. But Master of Puppets, for me personally, is almost a perfect album. I mean, it sounds so good. And like Sonny said, to sell that many of a single and that single be a song like Master of Puppets, you still hear Master of Puppets in TV shows and in movies today. I mean, there are movies coming out today where that song will pop up from time to time. So it's just a fantastic body of work from Metallica. And I think it's what solidified Metallica to make them the band they are today, because really they kind of laid the foundation with Kill Em All and Ride the Lightning. But this is uh, really the record, in my opinion, that built that first step on the ladder to the success that they were going to have. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. All right, so we're going to take a quick break from the podcast here to talk about the Grown Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group. If you are a listener of this show, you should definitely join our Loud Minority Facebook group. We often talk about some of the topics that we're going to discuss, some of the topics that we've already discussed. We get a lot of opinions from folks that are chiming in. It's generally a very positive group of folks, and that's the way we like it. We try to keep all the poison and toxicity out of the group because we just ain't got time for a bunch of negativity. We want people to voice their opinions, but in a positive way. So come on over to the Grown Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group. Just ask to join. You'll get a few questions that pop up, mostly rock and roll questions, so that you got to answer it. Make sure you're not a bot. 
that's checking up on us. And it's a private group, so you're free to talk about rock and roll. Not have to worry about Sonny trying to police you and tell you that that band is brutal because maybe you like them. So there you go. Okay, getting back to the episode, we're going to go with a band that you most likely have not heard of, and you're going to be surprised that Sonny's even bringing this band up, but I'm the one who added this band to the list. Band's called Hammerfall, and the album's called Renegade, and it was released in 2000, and it was their third studio album. So if you don't know anything about Hammerfall, they're a Swedish power metal band that was formed in 93. They've got 11 studio albums. Members at this point were Joasim Cans on vocals, Oscar Dronjak on guitar, Stefan Elbgrom on guitar, Magnus Rosen on bass. Heaven forbid we don't have a Magnus in a Swedish band. You know, everybody's got to have one. It must be like Joe there or something. Uh, and uh, Anders Johansson on drums. The album went number one in Sweden. It had two singles, Renegade and Always Will Be, which were both, again, charting in Sweden. Nobody knows this band. The U.S. is just who they are. Again, my thoughts. When you hear this, you're going to say, really? Sonny likes this? I'll tell you, I got to be in the right mood, but the vocalist is really good and it's Dungeons and Dragons metal. Okay. But it's not as aggressive as Raven. So it's really listenable to me and it's almost symphonic metal without the heavy keyboards. So now I will admit at times, if you go and you shuffle and you start on a legend reborn, you're most likely going to turn Hammerfall off and never listen again because that is a tough listen. But if you want to give them a good chance, try keep the flame burning, living in victory, the way of the warrior, or even the ballad always will be is really good. The album is mixed really well. And Michael did both the mixing and the producing on this record. So really overall, it's a good record. There's just a couple of songs that get a little, I don't know, symphonic -y, I guess. I don't exactly know how to explain it. Do you know this record? I do not know this record in particular. I know this band, but I never really paid much attention to them because what I knew of them is that they were symphonic metal, which really isn't my bang zone of rock and roll. Now, that being said, bands like Battle Beast and Beast in Black have softened me a little bit and opened me up to a little bit more power metal, symphonic metal, that type stuff. So when I saw that you had this record on, I said, okay, well, let me do it justice. Let me go listen to it. Man, dude, I like this record. <laughs> I think it's a pretty good record. I mean, I like Templars of Steel. I like Keep the Flame Burning. Who can go wrong with a song like Raise the Hammer? God dang it. I like me some Dungeons and Dragon metal once in a while. So there's nothing... Yeah, I don't have anything bad. You're right. It does sound very good. And Hammerfall, like you said, they've been around for a while. I know a lot of people that have seen them live and say they're a fantastic live band. Good on them. So from Hammerfall that nobody's heard of to the guys who wrote more than words, we're going to go with Extreme Pornography 1990 second studio album. So Michael Wagner's involved in the producing here. So is Nuno technically. Members at this point are the four members you know, Gary Schroen on vocals, Nuno Betancourt on guitar, Pat Badger on bass, Paul Geary on drums. The album topped out at number 10 on the Billboard 200, is sold double platinum in the U.S., had five singles, Decadent Stance, Get the Funk Out, Song for Love, Wholehearted, which got to number four on the Billboard 100, and then the number one hit, More Than Words, which also went to gold as a single. My thoughts, flat out 
the best album I own. It is perfect in every way. I absolutely love this album. Yes, that includes all the Kiss albums, all the Maiden albums. It is the best album I own, period. I still listen to it probably two or three times a month in full. Everybody knows more than words and wholehearted, but I'll tell you that when I first kissed you is just as good as those ballads are. And then you add like a decadence dance and He-Man, Woman, Hater, and Get the Funk Out, which could be one of the best guitar solos in rock history. It's got an incredible album. And it sounds so bright and so fun and so moody. Like just everything about this album is so perfect for me. Your thoughts? The day that I purchased this cassette, which was the day that it came out, because I was already an extreme fan after the first record, it was a Desert Island record for me. I think I ended up buying maybe two or three cassettes over the course of time because I wore them out. Just a perfect Desert Island record for me. I don't know if it's the best record I own. That's just me personally. But it is fantastic from start to finish. Yes, there's fatigue going on with, you know, wholehearted and the ballads wear a little bit on me. But I don't think I ever get tired of hearing Decadent Dance or Get the Funk Out. One of my personal favorites is a deep track called Monster. I played it on this show probably two or three times. I absolutely love it. They used to open with it, which was fantastic. I love this record. It really is just such a great record. Perfect job, Michael Wagner. Thank you for this record. Next record we're going to talk about is Great White's debut, 1984. Michael had a hand in the mixing and the producing here. Members at this point, Jack Russell on vocals, Mark Kendall on guitar, Lorne Black on bass, and Gary Holland on drums. Album topped out at 144 on the Billboard 200. It released three singles, a song called Stick It, which got on the mainstream rock charts and topped out at 56, a song called Substitute, which is the Who cover, and a song called Street Killer. My thoughts on this album. This is not your Mitch Malloy's Great White, okay? This is not the great... You wouldn't even think this is Great White. If you start at Once Bitten and Twice Shy... You're going to think this is a completely different band because this album's almost borderline metal. And I will tell you, Jack sounds great. Like he sounds awesome singing this type of songs. I'm surprised they went bluesy, although maybe they don't have the hits that they had if they kind of stick to this formula because the first two records are a little bit different than everything else they did later on. But songs like Out of the Night, On Your Knees, Dead End, Dead End is almost like an older brother to Fast Road. Like if you love Once Bitten and you've heard that song Fast Road, Dead End is basically the same thing, what, three years earlier and a little bit more metal. So uh, it's a good album, but uh, you can't expect, you know, my, 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 Once Bitten, Twice Shy. That's for sure. Your thoughts on this album? So this record has this personal place in my heart, basically. Uh, this was the first Great White record I owned, and I bought it because Great White was opening up the, I want to say the Screaming for Vengeance tour. Maybe it was the Defenders of the Faith tour. I don't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure it was Judas Priest that they were opening up for. And there used to be this hotel right next to the arena where the bands played. It was a Holiday Inn. And we used to always stay there. But a lot of the bands that were opening up for the bands that were headlining would also stay there. So I met Jack Russell and the drummer Gary Holland. And I want to say that that was probably the first quote unquote rock stars that I had met as a kid. Uh, so it has a special place in my heart. And like Sonny said, this is a metal record. This is not your daddy's great white for sure. 
or maybe it is and you're used to once bitten twice shy so no stick it awesome down on your knees awesome just it's a raw record for sure it's not overproduced at all just killer
So next I want to talk about, and there's a lot of history with Udo and with Michael. Again, we talked about it a little bit. They started a band together. They had a business together for a while, and they've just been friends since, I think, grade school. So they've known each other a long, long time. But the next album we're going to talk about is Accept, Restless and Wild from 1982. It was their fourth studio album. At this point, the members are Udo on vocals, Wolf Hoffman on guitar, Herman Frank on guitar, which he's credited, but he actually doesn't record any part of the record. Peter Baltz on bass, Stefan Kaufman on drums. Singles were Fast as a Shark and Restless and Wild. Neither one charted. This album got a little bit of notoriety, but it got them the real contract on RCA and started their success on the charts with the next four albums. So this was really kind of the stepping stone, very similar to the Great White album being a stepping stone for them. And Michael did both the mix and the production on this. Now, Accept. All right, let's 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 start with Udo. We, we saw him on the Monsters of Rock tour. It wasn't Udo's Accept. It was Udo with a band behind him. I left that show going, wow, that band was great, and Udo was probably the worst musician on the stage. That's just my personal opinion. I don't like Udo's voice. I know Udo's never going to join us on the podcast. I'm sorry, Udo. I, I'm not a big fan of the voice. That being said, <laughs> Accept is probably one step better than Raven. Although it's a little too metal, and I don't like Udo's voice, there's actually some melodies to accept music, which I didn't find in Raven. Now, songs like Ahead of the Pack, Demon's Night, and Neon Nights, dude, brutal listens. That 12 minutes was a tough 12 minutes to get through. Fast as a Shark is listenable, but I'm not an accept fan. I know you are a big accept fan, so let's hear from you. Funny is that I actually had the opportunity to interview Udo last month. <laughs> I, I passed on it. Yeah, I'm a huge Except fan. This record, a lot of people know Balls to the Wall. That's kind of the first success that Except had. But albums like Breaker and this one, Restless and Wild was an awesome album. Songs like Fast as a Shark are credited oftentimes as being the first like thrash metal song because that song is really heavy and really fast. This record is so good. Songs like Neon Nights that you said are brutal. Neon Nights is awesome. Oh, that is a yuck. that's a great song. Fast as a Shark, Restless and Wild. Those songs are all good, man. Sonny doesn't like it except if you like straight up hard rock metal, go check out this record. If you're a fan of Balls to the Wall, you'll like this record. It's it's right in there. Uh if you don't like that kind of stuff or you just don't like the growly voice of Udo, then I get it. It's not for you, but for me, I dig it. It's awesome. Go pick it up. Holy show It's 
You want a good singer? Don't listen to Accept. <laughs> uh, okay, the last full album we're going to talk about here: Dawkins Under Lock and Key from 1985, and it was their third studio album. Uh, Michael and Don Dawkins have a history. Um, they met each other in Germany. Michael lived with them when he was in the U.S. He's produced or mixed several of their albums. He mixed and produced this one with Neil Kernan, so they kind of did it in tandem. The members at this point are your classic Dokken members, Don Dokken on vocals, George Lynch on guitar, Jeff Pilson on bass, Mick Brown on drums. Uh, the band approved on the charts with every album that they released and under lock and key was in the middle of that. Got to number 32 on the Billboard 200. It's, it's a platinum album in the U.S. The singles were The Hunter, which got to number 25 on the mainstream rock charts, In My Dreams, which got to number 77 on the Billboard Hot 100. And then they had It's Not Love, Unchained the Night, and Will the Sunrise as singles that didn't chart. 
My thoughts on this, George himself has said, this is where his guitar tone was the best in his opinion, ever. This was the album where his guitar tone was what he wanted. So I'm listening to the album the other day, probably for the 500th time in my life maybe, and I'm really enjoying the songs like Unchained the Night, Lightning Strikes Again, Don't Lie to Me. And I'm thinking, wait a second, why isn't this album on my Desert Island list? There's no bad songs on this album. So I added it to my Desert Island list because Back for the Attack is on that list. And I'm like, I don't understand why this album wasn't on the list because it is an absolutely outstanding album. The songs are written really well. Don Dawkins' voice, it's okay. Like, it's not, it doesn't grate on me. It doesn't wow me at times. It's uh, not boring, but it just it lays a little flat. I've not been a huge fan of Dawkins live. I've not seen Dawkins live do well. I guess. But that being said, on tape, man, this album is amazing. What do you think? Yeah, it's a shame that you couldn't have seen Dokken back in the day. I saw them on Monsters of Rock. They were okay. Before then, back in the day, like tooth and nail. I saw them open up for Dio in the last in line. I think they were touring. They were touring tooth and nail and they were fantastic. They were really good. They talked about not being good on Monsters of Rock tour. They talked about how crappy they were. They they admitted they were horrible. They were not in a good place during that tour at all. But yeah, just a fantastic record. I think songs like Will the Sun Rise uh, don't get enough credit because they really are outstanding songs. Everybody knows songs like In My Dreams, Unchained the Night, It's Not Love, The Hunter. Those are great songs as well. But some of the deeper tracks, I've always liked Lightning Strikes. Just a fantastic record from start to finish. I don't know if it's a Desert Island record. I'd have to listen to it again. I haven't listened to it from start to finish in a while to make that decision. But uh, yeah, I can see where you would add that to your list. So before we get to some closing comments, let's go to Kiss. You wanted the best, and you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So a lot of the artists that Michael's worked with have connections to Kiss. For example, Bonfire did a Paul Stanley pen tune called Sword and Stone. Kane Roberts co-wrote Take It Off from Revenge, if you didn't know that. Skid Row did an amazing cover of Come On and Love Me. But we're going to go with the, <laughs> the band Hammerfall. Really, this Hammerfall thing, damn it. But they got a great rendition of the Kiss classic, Detroit Rock City.
like it. It seems a little, is it a little bit faster than the original? A little bit harder too, right? It's got a little bit of edge to it. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me with the more modern recording and they're just, uh, Hammerfall's just a heavier band. So yeah, I like it. I liked it. So kind of wrapping up with Michael Wagner, you know, there's tons of albums we could have picked. The guy's got 40 plus years in the business. Um, you know, we could have picked pretty much any Dokken album. He did a couple of Kane Roberts album. He did Inside the Electrical Circus with Wasp. He's done a Striker album or two. We've talked about Striker a little bit. There's this story out there that for Ozzy, he was supposed to do No More Tears because the label said, here, the record's done and wanted to know if he could do better. And then he was supposed to do Osmosis. They're in the middle of kind of doing pre-production. And the record company comes to him and says, well, I want it to sound like Soundgarden. And Michael's like, it doesn't work that way. Like, you can't just make somebody sound like Soundgarden. So he bounced out of Osmosis. So there's things, the nice part about Michael's career is he got notoriety quickly. So I think he got to choose what he wanted to work on. And he himself has said he's never been without work. He's always had work. At times, he had too much work that he had to turn it away. And at times, he didn't take enough time off. So if the guy's retiring after 40 plus years in the business, you know what? Power to him, buddy. I hope Skid Row debut album is paying for your retirement. I hope so. One of the things we didn't really talk about, so we talked about a few of the really big records that probably made him some bank, right? That first Skid Row, for sure. Maybe under lock and key. Maybe extreme porno graffiti. Uh, but one thing we didn't mention was White Lion's Pride. I bet that paid some bills for him because that sold a whole hell of a lot of stuff. A lot of the stuff that we talked about, like the Master of Puppets and No More Tears and Motley Crue's Too Fast for Love, he was a mixer. So he wasn't a producer, which means he probably was just paid a flat fee to mix the record. So that probably didn't pay as many bills as when he was producing some of these records. Do you happen to recall the interview that he did where he said what he thought was his best record that he ever produced or at least uh, artist that he ever worked on? I don't remember him saying. He said Kane Roberts. Oh, did he? Yeah, he said Kane Roberts was a record that he was really surprised didn't do better. I tried to listen to that record, Saints and Sinners. It just didn't connect with me. I didn't think it was horrible, but for whatever reason, it didn't really connect with me that much. Do you like that record? Uh, it's okay. Both, uh, well, both the Kane Roberts records and stuff he's done later, there's some good stuff on there. There's no really bad stuff. It just, it's not anything special. It's just kind of blah. It reminds you of, uh, or at least for me, like a Richie Sambora type record. Like I love Richie and Bon Jovi, but his solo records kind of fell flat for me because I think he needs John to round him out. And I think Kane needs a guy, a gal to help him take his music and make it better. Or maybe more special, not better. Better's a bad word. I think Kane's good at what he does. Yeah, for sure. Man, Michael's worked on some great material over the years and definitely has contributed to my love for a lot of these records during a time where hard rock was just coming of age and was all over the charts. It's fantastic. So cheers to you, Michael Wagner, for all that you did for rock and roll, all your mixing and all your producing. I hope you enjoy your retirement and uh, go travel to wherever you want to travel to. Yeah. And I'll say to Michael, he's a true talent. I appreciate all the variety of musicians that he's worked with. The music Michael touched definitely had an influence on my musical taste and flat out has made my life better. So there is plenty of times 
where I'm not feeling good about something or I just need music to take me on a journey somewhere and I put something in, it makes me feel great. And you look at the back of the CD and it's Michael Wagner, right? So thanks. Without him, maybe I don't get some of the stuff that I absolutely love. Absolutely. We hope to see you on the Monsters of Rock Cruise. For now, that's it. Thank you, Michael Wagner. Thank you for everybody that's listening to the Grown Up Rock Podcast. We appreciate each and every one of you guys. Go out there and support some of this great rock and roll that Michael's been a part of. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 